Network functions virtualization. Taking that thing that used to be a router or a firewall or a load balancer on probably fancy hardware and then you're just going to stick it on a generic x86 or maybe an ARM server. And so now you've got this virtualized version of the network function. Pretty handy when you're constrained for rack space or we want to spin these things up and down on demand. It's cloud friendly, multi-tenant friendly and service chaining friendly. And some of you really love to hug your router, though, and you kind of avoid that NFV thing. You'd rather run physical networking hardware with very special silicon and Virtualize that if you have to virtualize something, and you got your good reasons to do it that way. You got stories, you got scars. But it's 2021, everybody. Are your reasons for hating on NFV still good reasons? Our guests today think just the opposite. In fact, they don't have time for hardware. So let's talk through what that means with Michael Pfeiffer, cloud networking architect, working in the salt mines at Avar, and Brad Gregory, senior product manager at Equinix. Now, if you heard Senior Product Manager at Equinix and you're like, oh, this is a sponsored show, this actually isn't a sponsored show. We're just going down the road of seeing if the NFV juice is worth the squeeze these days. So, Michael, over to you. Uh, I want to open up with this question. Where are we at, first of all, with NFV performance? Because some would argue, yeah, it's kind of too slow for real networking, isn't it? Because, you know, with real networking, you got ASICs and crypto offload silicon and, and all that stuff. So, so catch us up where we're at. Yeah, so it's not to say that hardware is not important. Um, crypto offload, ASICs are still very much relevant. Um, those are used when you're scaling vertically, when you need higher performance, higher throughput. Um, you're doing you know million plus packet processing per second. Um, those have a very defined use case. But what we're looking at with NFV is more of a horizontal scaling and prescriptive application of it. So these virtual platforms that run on top of it, um, they're capable of doing, uh, you know, multiple gigabits, not as fast as our hardware counterparts. They're capable of doing hundreds of thousands, close to maybe a million packets per second. Um, but you're going to use these prescriptively. And if you need more bandwidth um, than what you're capable of getting from a single virtual platform, you're just going to scale it out horizontally and then distribute the load across those virtual nodes. I think also we shouldn't underestimate the fact that commodity hardware that NFE instances, that is software routing, or, you know, if you're buying a virtual router from a cloud provider or in a interconnect provider, there's a lot of uh, acceleration going on in the CPU these days or in the standard ASICs. It's not like there's no acceleration in an x86 platform. There's actually quite a lot. Oh, yeah. No, um, th that's a really good point. You know, we've worked in the some of the major cloud providers where we can throw um, substantial resources against these virtual devices and we can do the appropriate tweaks and modifications to them and get, you know, around eight gigs of throughput aggregate, which is very impressive um, for virtual virtual routing devices. So we've gotten a lot better at uh, moving packets around the virtual world, you know, DPDK, VPP, SRLV. Uh, Things have been enhanced um, to really take some of the bottlenecks out uh, of the equation. Um, so I think one of the things, you know, nobody loved uh, a day in the life of a packet in a box more than I did. Um, <laughs> but I think the key to this stuff is really understanding how packets get moved in a virtual world and what that means on, on an x86 platform, right? You know, curl spaces versus user, user space. Really learn virtual switching. How does interrupt processing work? Um, so really uh, digging into those um, and understanding how things have evolved over time, I think yeah. I think it's a big benefit, right? For especially a hardware. If you have a hardware background like I do, a lot of network engineers do, learn how things work at a virtual level, and then what? you get a lot better understanding. Yeah, but the hardware, the hardware matters less and less for more and more people. That's not to say the hardware doesn't matter. It does. If you're trying to terminate 400 gigs, 800 gig DWDM. Hardware absolutely matters, right? You're not yep. going to be able to, um, you know, drop in some sort of DWDM interface on a, an x86 and run that through, decode the the wave, turn it into IP, and then re-encode it and send it back out at nanosecond speeds, right? That's not going to happen. But that's uh, becoming increasingly a niche market where the, the backhaul or the transmission line is becoming hardware-centric but also less and less feature rich. So 20 years ago, we had ATM, every device had to hold a table, it had to hold state, it had to hold, you know, virtual circuit IDs and then MPLS came along and simplified that. And the next generation will be, it's all just routes. 
It's just IP4, IPv6. They won't be MPLS in five to 10 years. It'll be all gone because what's the point in having an MPLS tunnel? Why have all that code and rubbish cluttering up the silicon when all you want to do is route the IP packet? Exactly, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's going to be an overlay world in networking instead of an underlay world, right? The, the mm-hmm. underlay is still there, obviously, to, to, to move stuff around, but it, it's increasingly moving toward an overlay world. So you think overlay, you still think the same constructs, but you don't have to bury yourself in the underlay anymore. You know, that the yeah. storage people have figured that out on the cloud long ago. Now it's just, you know, that same paradigm is coming into the network space. And it, it's, it's going to be there. It, it's here now. That's why we're having this discussion. Well, and then when you start doing it at the edge, you don't need, you know, terabyte class networking instances. You need one gig, five gig, 10 gig, and you can achieve yeah. that with commodity hardware today. That's the yeah. flip side is Intel. Um, and increasingly, um, we're seeing the emergence of SmartNICs. Now, SmartNICs has sort of been around for 20 years and they've been niche, but we've suddenly seen the emergence of SmartNICs really in, I don't know, Ethan, what, six to nine months? It's really so, been pushed hard, especially with VMware yeah. getting behind a lot of that stuff, yeah. 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 So yeah. now all of a sudden, you've actually got a computer with a SmartNIC, which is a generic networking accelerator. We're going to see a lot of that, I think, this year already, looking forward to who's sponsoring shows this year, Ethan. We're mm-hmm. going to be talking a lot about yes. SmartNICs in servers doing virtual firewalls, routing acceleration, intrusion detection. And it's not that they're doing it. They're just able to, the instances that are in those servers will now be able to make API calls and say, just do this for me, do the firewall, do it down there in the NIC and do it at wire rate, you know, with super low latency. And, you know, here's the, here's the table of IDS rules, just go and IDS it at the, at the thing. And that, it's not that the hardware is going away, it's that the hardware has moved forward. There's, so there's a lot of points here. We can summarize this whole opening of, of critiquing NFV by talking about performance. It used to be x86 was the, the thing and where all the action was, and it was a bottleneck and it was slow and so on. But now we've got those are the smart nick point that we've made here where we're offloading a lot of those network functions. So you still got a generic box, if you will, but it's got a smart nick in it that's doing a lot of this work. Um, as Mike, you pointed out earlier on, we're spreading the load around anyway. So you're going to run rather than one big honking router, you'll spread virtual routers around and distribute loads across them. So you don't need huge throughput in a lot of cases anyway. And then there's been advances in uh, the Linux kernel, how networking is done there. Um, and a lot of techniques, uh, Brad, you rattled off a whole host of acronyms that are tied to exactly how packets are being moved around on Linux-based networking that has advanced performance a lot. So if you haven't checked in to NFV for a while, there's a whole lot of things that have made performance really change, and you can really get a lot of scale and throughput uh, from these systems now when in the beginning it was, it was a little rough. It just was, sure, okay. All right, let's, let's move on to another issue here, another objection that people might have about NFV. Some folks are going to say something like, I don't trust my NFV provider because of reasons, security, or I don't think they're good at it, or I don't like the abstraction or whatever else. I, I want to own everything and I, I want to be in control. Uh, Mike, let's kick this back to you. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, so, you know, I have to, you know, think years back when I first encountered OpenStack and seeing that built um, within an organization and being used um, for for NFV functions. And, you know, uh, (laughs) I don't wanna be in control. That thing was difficult, (laughs) unruly. Nobody in the organization beyond um, the mad scientists that put it together and, you know, the the poor sap that went along with it to build and maintain it, um, that poor sap being me, um, knew much about it. And it's not to say that, you know, our teams couldn't wrap their heads around it. They couldn't be trained on it, but they were much more interested and dealing with business outcomes and things that were relevant to their day job and to the enterprise itself. Um, so, you know, if you want to take advantage of NFV, you're going to want to find a provider, somebody that can potentially offload that complexity for you, that can just give you the, the goodness that you want to be able to instantiate whatever virtual network function you want on top of it, to be able to consume the service, do the business thing that you need to do. And so you offload that to a provider. Now, when you bring up security and competence abstraction, these providers make their living based off of delivering you a valuable service. So there's going to be SLAs with it. There's going to be security controls around it. Um, you know, you're paying for a service there. You just have to be cognizant of what you're getting yourself into, what they are going to offer you that can 
um, help you handle those concerns. But, you know, my argument would be, I don't want to be in control of it going forward. I just want to be able to consume whatever service I need. You don't want to go to Cisco and say, hey, I need a virtualized version of X thing that you guys make. And then, uh, you know, you manage it and deploy it and deal with the licensing and, you know, stand it up on your own virtual machine infrastructure. You want to go to a provider that's got a list of NFV choices, pick it off of a, a list and then pop it in wherever it needs to go. Yeah, precisely. Just like you would with the, the public cloud, right? They have their marketplace. You see the thing that you want, you get it, you use it, and, you know, you're on to the next thing. You know, we talk about OpEx model a lot, but to me, it's a little bit deeper than that. Cloud-like characteristics give me the ability to decouple the supply and the demand curve, right? You know, equate it to underlay and overlay, supply being the underlay and demand being the overlay. I just want to be in the overlay business now, right? I've got an application. I got something I need to spin up quick. So if I turn the underlay over to somebody else, that, that I don't have to worry about the supply curve anymore. I just need to worry about the demand curve. So whenever I need an instance, to Mike's point, uh, I just go uh, log into a portal, a few clicks, and I instantiate a network device to create an overlay network for my application. I'm not racking and stacking equipment. I'm not you know, shipping things all over the place. I'm actually really able to move at the speed that I've always wanted to move. I've got cloud-like characteristics now that I'm able to bring to the network, which has been lacking for a while, to be honest. Yeah, I find that argument is both compelling and facetious at the same time. Um, In the sense that, yes, it's true that I could go to a third-party provider who has some sort of virtual networking service. And there's a range of them. They vary from infrastructure providers, so people who are carriers, who um, used to uh, aggregate all bandwidth from a bunch of telcos and sort of manage the WAN for you. And now they've turned into virtual networking companies. And then you've got, and that's like your Equinoxes and your um, Massages and those types of companies, right? And then you've got a, an emerging class of companies like Alkira and Packet Fabric who are doing virtual overlays virtually. So completely out of the cloud and then using customer infrastructure. So there's more than, there's a spectrum of, virtual WAN infrastructure, which I'm referring to. The question here is you can also do this yourself if only your management was competent enough to reliably predict what things were happening. So I have worked for companies who, you know, we are going to run out of bandwidth in three months. We should order some more bandwidth or we need to, you can implement virtual routers yourself. So instead of buying hardware routers, start buying servers and instantiating virtual network functions in your infrastructure, you get the same capacity. Now, you may be responsible for things that are outside of your capacity. And at that point, again, you need competent management to be able to support everything that you can buy from any of these providers. You can do yourself, but most people don't volunteer to do that. They believe that somehow mystically paying somebody else is going to make it better. And, and I'm not always convinced that's true. But it may not be better, Greg, but there's, there's a point to be made here that I think goes back to what you were saying, Mike. If you're focused on business outcomes, does plumbing up the underlay make you any money? I mean, we could argue, not really. If someone else is doing it, what I care about is that application delivery and how I'm stitching my services together on top of that to get that application that does make me money delivered. I don't want to have to care about the underlay. That's an argument I could make. Hmm. Yeah, to yep. me, it's like there's a management insertion point that we all have to make a decision where we want to be, right? Because at some point, you don't do uh, power, space, and cooling, right? Um, you, you, you hand that off. You don't worry about it. So there, there's a management plane that can be plotted on a point somewhere. I think it's just a business decision to see where you want to plot yourself on that plane. Uh, but definitely, yeah, you can spin up. You can create your own NFE platform, do it yourself. Um, yeah, it just, just depends on where you want to take precious resources and allocate them, right? But Mike, going back to you, I mean, there is something you've got to own. You're not just handing mm-hmm. everything over to someone else, right? Where you draw, where do you draw the line? Yeah, precisely. So, you know, when I think about this, I'm just drawing from personal experience. When we did the physical stacks, when we explored the virtualization and everything, um, there was a level of offloading of that physical hardware to a smart hands organization, to a data center ops organization, things like that. So we in the engineering team focused more on the high level aspects, the the configurations that go on top, 
Um, we did some really cool stuff with MPLS over DMVPN that I'm really proud of and will probably never do again in the rest of my life because it was a <laughs> lot of a lot of work. But, you know, we, we focus on creating these outcomes and we didn't necessarily worry about how the equipment was going to get into the rack. We didn't necessarily worry too much about how it was going to be cabled. Yes, we came up with a cable map to instruct the people on how to connect these things. We didn't worry about the power, the cooling. We offloaded all of this to different organizations, whether they were internal to mm -hmm. us or external to a third party. So that's where my focus has largely been. And as I think more about the NFV stuff and my time with OpenStack and eventually nuking the thing and putting a more traditional hypervisor on it to make it more accessible to folks, you know, I, I look at it like that. It's like, well, you know, if I could, take a uh, NFV stack and offload that to somebody else that does have the expertise to be able to do that. I don't have to mm. staff it within the organization itself. I don't have to go and find that um, unicorn engineer or group of engineers that cost an obscene amount of money that, you know, I can get this from somebody else. That, that's where my head goes with it. You know, there there is a level of trust there. You just have to investigate those organizations, make sure they have the competencies to do the NFV correctly and then you can start using it with, you know, confidence. Let's take a deviation. How hard is it to have those competencies? You're saying it's like super magic powers to be able to run oh, the instance. And I would no. say, yeah, I was deploying software firewalls uh, 15 years ago, quite successfully. Yeah, no, that, that, that's a fair call out. It's not a uh, super magic power. It depends on what yeah. the, the person is focused on. You know, uh, if if my buddy listens to this, he'll he'll take this in good stride. I hope. Um, you know, we worked with a guy who couldn't route. Um, his routing, he, he couldn't figure out static routes. He can't figure out dynamic routing. <laughs> but he knew wireless inside and out. We had over six thousand sites using Flex Connect wireless. He was a wireless master. Yagi antennas, site surveys. Um, when we started doing PKI, he jumped into the certificates, figured out how we could implement that and consume it. And in my book, that dude gets a pass on routing. He gets a pass on traditional network design because he does things that are essentially magic to me. And they're magic in the sense that I haven't sat down for three, four or five months and really delved into this, that I'm focusing on other things. And we're just kind of coming together to contribute to um, whatever the business is trying to achieve. So if the business could slow down enough to give their people the training that they have, invest back into them, then yeah, they could definitely do this stuff. Yeah. And I think one thing too, NFV is a little bit more than just uh, running a virtual appliance in your data center. NFV is a, you know, there's a construct, there's, there's an Etsy compliance standard that, that uh, lays out the three stacks and how you interact with an NFV platform. So an NFV platform is, is a little bit different well, actually, it's a lot different than just spinning up a bunch of uh, virtual machines to run virtual networking on. It, it's two hmm. different, two different things, right? So, well, it, and this is one of these problems where, when I look at companies that specialize in providing virtual networking, and when they're doing it at scale, I always start to question myself: how much time do they spend working at scale, and how much time are they actually spending doing the core business? So, for example, uh, the story I often use here is that Amazon. Um, was had a problem with power coming into its data centers. And as it continued to increase the amount of power, it found that the transformers that the power grid was using didn't work for them. And so they had to go out and design their own transformers and the, the whole input feed, and they had to spend five years and a whole team of people. Now, that's a scale problem. That's not a technology problem that normal companies have. That's not a cost that we have. And that's not a superpower that's a niche solution to a niche problem. And one of the challenges I have when I look at these companies that specialize in virtual networking is questioning just the reality here. Now, this is not a negative, by the way. I'm just saying, how much time do they spend working out how to run 1,000 routers for 100 customers? Whereas if I was a customer and I just had to run 10 routers, could I do it in one-tenth of the effort? And the answer is maybe both, right? In some cases, it's just easy to spin up 10 different virtual routers at the front end uh, of your firewall infrastructure, connect them to the feed. And why do I need a managed service provider to give me a direct connect feed to Azure or AWS or the Googles? Why do I need somebody who's going to give me an API for that? Why don't I implement that myself by just being a little bit smart and doing a bit of Ansible? 
Uh, so, you know, the, the counter argument to that would be, um, you know, as I look at these solutions um, that you kind of mentioned earlier, hmm. um, and I think about regionalization and edge use cases, which we kind of alluded to at the beginning of the, the show, is if I don't have a physical presence, if I don't have the hardware or the stack myself in, say, Seattle, Toronto, uh, Dallas, any of these locations, then I can go to this third party that does have it present there that can mm-hmm. stitch me into their fabric that can deliver the service that I need. And, you know, I, in the span of 45 minutes, you know, I can have something up and running and connected to the network. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Without having to do that, that heavy lifting up front. So there is value in say being in a colo facility and having a, say a 10 gig or a hundred gig line up to the core and then being able to dynamically say, I want an internet pipe of one gig, two gig, five gig, 10 gig, you know, whatever. And potentially even saying, connect me to a private network to an AWS Direct Connect. I can see value in that because if you're in a colo, um, then the scaling up of that actually makes sense to me. But if I was attempting to roll out an SD-WAN, buying an SD-WAN from a managed services company, that seems to me to be a backward step. That's like saying, Mm. I need to run a fleet of cars if I get someone else to run the fleet of cars for me, that's more efficient than me running it myself. Uh, that can be the case if you've got incompetent staff and incompetent managers who are not very good at running a fleet of cars. But mm. if you have the right approach, then you may well have, you would probably run a fleet of cars much more efficiently yourself. Yeah, th- this is the best of both worlds, actually. I'm glad you said that. So the SD-WAN yourself, you run it, you own it, and you operate it, right? You throw the thing wherever you need it. You're still doing that internally. You're still getting the benefits out of that. You're just where the thing lives, you don't care about anymore. I just popped it over into this destination and that's where it needed to go. Mm. Yeah, and I think edge computing is, is really the key here because you have to go meet all of these meet points on their terms, namely the cloud. You know, it used to be where if, if I wanted uh, internet, WAN, whatever connection, call up any provider, they bring it to your front door. Cloud providers don't work that way. You have to go meet them at their front door. So the, the, the thing really got flipped on its head eight, 10 years ago when you had to go meet AWS. You know, AWS doesn't come to your front door. You got to go to theirs. Mm. So that's, I think, really the, the, the key when I think about NFE or any type of virtual solution. I'm able to spin network on-ramps up virtually now when I want them at all of these meet points all over the world uh, at the same speed and the same cloud-like characteristics that I have in the cloud that I'm trying to get to. I brought those you know, NIST cloud attributes closer to your front door than I was able yeah. to. Before. And that, that can be valuable if you actually change. How yes, absolutely. Yep. actually change? Like, do you really need to be able to instantiate a, an additional direct connection to the Mumbai AWS cloud on a three-hour notification, how 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 many organizations need? Yeah, that's what's that. been going through my head too. Because there's an implication here in this conversation that you need to be able to spin something up quickly. Mike, near the top of the show, you mentioned I'm going to stand up, you know, a whole bunch of these routers, firewalls, whatever mm-hmm. they might be, and kind of implicitly, they have a short life, maybe or at least a, a temporary life where they're going to get shut back down again. So this, there's not a a seven year life cycle like you'd have with a piece of hardware. It's something that comes and goes, but does everybody need that? Or or do you have to have that requirement for NFE to make sense? Not necessarily. And, and, you know, something that that is often misleading and, you know, I was maybe a little misleading with that 45 minute comment is you haven't removed the need for architecture design coming up with legitimate use cases for it. Right. And I may be skipping ahead a little bit, but you still have to really think through what you're doing. And then, you know, when you get to that point, you can start actualizing on it. Now, if you, for whatever reason, maybe your business wants to break into an emerging market, they want to you know, get their feet in the water, um, so to speak, and see what's going on there, and they don't necessarily have a presence already, it may behoove them to, to explore this ephemeral option that they may be able to throw something out there um, using a co-location service um, that does offer um, you know, an NFV platform that they can stitch back into their network to their cloud destinations, and they can do a trial there. If things end up working out for them, you know, it could potentially transition into a permanent thing if it meets their needs as they grow and expand in that region. Or you know, they find out that they're not going to be successful in that location. Hmm. Then they can just pop it out of existence and say, okay, well, that failed, but we didn't 
um, go out and spend an obscene amount of money. We didn't get ourselves into this yeah. two, three-year contract where we're stuck in this location. We didn't sign all this stuff with these service providers. We just did um, something that is essentially a monthly recurring cost, flat rate, and we just cut it off because we no longer mm. need it. I mean, is that part of what drives this thing too? Because I could, you, you talk about an enormous amount of money. Okay, I could buy, uh, I don't know, a Cisco ASR or some Juniper MX box or something that's very spendy if mm. I'm expecting things to be permanent, but at least I've done the spend once plus some OPEX for maintenance, let's say. I don't know, I've lost track of Cisco licensing. Maybe it's more <laughs> of an OPEX than I think it is. But, uh, oh, but it's Catalyst too now, not not ASR. <laughs> oh, did they change that? Sorry. I, uh, you can see how well yeah. I keep up with the Cisco product lines. You know, I guess to me, it's a lot of pets versus cattle, right? Um, you know, if, if, if you're gonna buy hardware and you're gonna, you're gonna take that responsibility on, that's care and feeding. Right. That, that, that's the, that's the pets world. I, I've got a, I've signed up for a life cycle management for that device mm. as opposed to just cattle. Right. I mean, uh, I want to spin up a device to my X point. I may want to use it a month as a bridge to a physical deployment, or maybe that's a permanent deployment, but it gives me an option to think of something like cattle. I used it. I don't need it anymore. Slaughter it, bring another one up. So if you think yeah. about it from a life cycle management standpoint too, um, but, I think that, that it's a big difference. I, I agree with that. And that, but I think the pets versus cattle is much more of an attitude or an approach to your infrastructure management. It's not a decision that I can't run cattle in my own infrastructure. So that's true. Right? Yeah. So, Absolutely. so yeah. Yep. now that it is also true that there are companies out there doing virtual networking overlays or managed network services that are much better at pets versus cattle, like at the cattle idea than I am simply by fact of the virtue of the fact that they're scaled up. You know, if they've got 500 customers on a shared virtual network, they're very cattle. But the challenge that I find with these managed networking providers is that they treat their networks like cattle, but they also treat their customers like cattle. So we end up with it, you know, we talk about, uh, we have these discussions about, you know, you can do this and you can create that and it's temporary and you get an API, but they also don't provide tech support. They don't provide any help to you. You're on your own. You can raise a case, but if it doesn't fit in the model, the answer is it's not my problem. So the flip side of using cattle-like services is you as a customer get treated like a cattle as well. And this is the experience of AWS and Azure. If you consume an AWS service, there's nobody you can ring. There's no one you can go to for help at AWS. There's no account manager who's going to be able to direct you to the right person to assist you with a feature request. It is you got cattle you're the cattle herder, you are stuck on your own. There's a counter argument to that. Now, I'm not, again, not positive or negative. I'm just saying there's a flip side to yep. being buying cattle-like services is as a customer, you get treated like cattle. Yeah, good point, good point. I, I think there's an, it depends there to some degree, Greg. Um, certainly AWS is um, guilty of that. We've heard the stories. You know, people have told us how difficult it's been for them to convince AWS of, a, of an AWS problem because they're like, oh, <laughs> no, it's, it couldn't be us because we're AWS. IPv6 networking. They've only just got IPv6 networking 10 years down the pipeline. If you ever had a customer in Asia, you couldn't use AWS until just recently, right? Unless you put some sort of IPv6 to IPv4 gateway in there. So, right? so, so let's go down the, uh, the the being treated like cattle thing for a minute and uh, and put that in the context of, of noisy neighbors. Very common problem. We all know about that from the early days of virtualized infrastructure of any sort. You are at risk for that if you are leveraging someone's NFV service. And you could argue networking devices are too important. If I'm pumping a lot of traffic through this NFV or this, this VNF, I guess, I can't risk throughput being impacted or packet loss or something due to noisy neighbors. And so therefore, it's just not worth the headache for me. Mike, have you run into that sort of a problem? Is that a, a thing you are concerned about? You know, that's a thing you have to investigate. Um, when you look at these providers um, that are offering their solutions, whether they have something that they built themselves, whether they're using um, somebody else's um, virtual infrastructure uh, to enable them, you have to you have to have that conversation up front. It's part of that investigation process. So what kind of guarantees around the resources do I have around this? When I instantiate this virtual device, 
do I get dedicated cores or am I oversubscribed? Do I get dedicated memory or am I oversubscribed? Same thing with the storage space. Um, same thing with the networking. You know, it, how many people are on this? Can you guarantee me guarantee me one to one and I'm actually going to get the performance I expect here? Or is it a four to one, 10 to one, 12 to one um, oversubscription? So that that's what you have to do up front. And then, you know, you got to crunch your numbers. Um, hopefully it's a one-to-one that they're offering. But if it is oversubscribed, crunch the numbers, um, see what you can get, you know, in your worst case scenario, your best case scenario. Um, always takes me back to my telephone days when, you know, you had only so so many numbers or so many lines that go outside the base, but then you distribute it out to, you know, everybody. Um, and you just kind of hope that works out for the best. So it's the same thing with that. You just got to do some research. Yeah, and I think network engineers you know, again, that have used to live living in the physical world where they didn't really share all that much, get comfortable and understand how virtual resources are allocated. Because to Mike's point, you know, there are ways to share memory and there are ways to dedicate memory in CPU when you, when you allocate the virtual resources. So just understand, do your homework, figure out on the platform, you know, how that particular vendor has implemented the resources. To yeah, instantiate I, network devices. I think, I think the point you're making there is that a lot of the challenges around NFE as a technology. So uh, 10 or 15 years ago, when I was building data center front ends and we were, we made a decision not to implement hardware-based firewalls to only go with software-based firewalls. And the only way that we could do that was to have one firewall per service. And that meant 20 firewalls in a single, you know, in a couple of x86 boxes running VM hypervisors and so forth and so on. And the challenge back then was if one or if if the firewalls weren't balanced, if I had one firewall running hot, say you know, 500 megabits per second, all the other ones were getting squeezed out. That problem in 2021 is a solved problem, in that VMware hypervisor, so especially specifically in VMware, you can allocate compute resources per hypervisor, and even as they move around the cluster, they'll retain those properties. So. Some of the challenges of the past aren't necessarily the challenges that we see today. This is the the commoditization cycle. The things that cloud companies or managed service providers could do were the only ones who had the scale and the resources to do. And now things that everybody can do because those features have trickled down in the technology stack. And so it's not always that the managed that the cloud companies or the virtual network providers have features that you don't have. It's just not necessarily convention at this point in time for you to do it yourself. And it may never be, by the way, the the virtual networking providers and the virtual services and the cloud has absolutely grabbed the marketing mindshare and the marketing dollars and the momentum is moving in that direction. So I, I may actually be just blowing hot air into the, against the flow, but there you go. <laughs> no, it's a fair point. I, th- I think you stated another way. Uh, virtualization is just more mainstream now. It's permeated more stacks in the mm. technology, right? So we're used to it now. Um, it was a very scary proposition five, six, seven years ago to virtualize networking. Now, I don't, I don't think it is. I mean, we, no. we've all gotten used to it. The, you know, VPP, yep. uh, V-switching, things have come out to uh, make virtual networking more performant. Yeah, and NSX has established itself as a proven the concept, I think. It's really the thing that's broken. Uh, you know, it works. People use it. People don't know they're using it. And even the virtual networking that's inside of vSphere, even if you don't go for the advanced or, you know, the enterprise versions of of VMware's hypervisor, you're still getting a fairly sophisticated networking stack compared to 10 years ago on the hypervisor. I want to talk about how automation might change the equation here. So, Mike, early in the show, you mentioned, I don't want to have to deal with a lot of stuff. I want to outsource the the creation of the stuff and uh, have it be a, a GUI or an API call or whatever. But network automations uh-huh. come a long way where a lot of folks are doing a lot of things from something as simple as a Python script or maybe an Ansible playbook to something quite sophisticated, maybe a full-blown commercial solution that is managing their networks to as complex as uh, intent-based networking. If that's still a term, uh-huh. let's pretend that's still a term and that's still a thing. Okay. <laughs> Um, so what does that change the equation in your mind or because there's, if you see the distinction I'm making, there's a subtle difference between you going to some provider and clicking the box and saying, yes, I'll pay for this. And then the service exists versus 
I manage a lot more of it myself, and I'm just going to use automation tooling to spin it up for me and get a kind of a similar result. Yeah, I mean, automation has certainly come a long way. Um, I've done quite a bit of it in my career. And there's still a lot of learning that goes along with it, right? It's just like what we talked about earlier um, about NFV platforms. They're not necessarily magic, but you do have to learn, right? You have to learn how to code. You have to learn to use Ansible, Terraform, uh, Salt Stack, you know, like whatever your flavor is that you want to end up using to, to automate your network. So, you know, just imagine, if you will, that you're focusing your automation efforts on figuring out how to deploy these servers, these x86 platforms um, en masse, and then also figure out how to deploy um, virtual networking services on top of them en masse. And then when you get those virtual networking services up and running, just imagine uh, the firewall configurations that need to go on top, the SD-WAN, the router configurations, the load balancer configurations that go on top. Uh, there's only so much a person or a team of people can do um, in a given year. <laughs> I, I remember being sent home from work because my hair was just like standing straight up. I had a weird look in my eye. My boss was like, dude, you're just you're done. Right. And th there's only so much you can do. So as I think about this, you know, NFV is just it, it's the the networking stack is important, right? It's critical infrastructure. But when I turn on my lights, I don't think about the, the power plants behind turning on those lights. So it's a little bit of that offload. When I turn on my power, I do high level functions with it. I'm able to live my life. That's kind of where my thought process is with it, is the things that I put on top of the NFV platform, that's where I want to focus my automation efforts. And hopefully some mm -hmm. of the stuff I'm putting on top of that platform has built in automation and orchestration, like an SD-WAN. Can I ask you a question about your automation? Would you write the automation, automation using Ansible Salt, you know, whatever the framework is this year? Um, or have you considered buying SDN platforms that do a, a large part of the work for you? Mm. So yeah, something the, like a, a Contrail, an Abstra, a Glueware? Yeah, you know, that's, that's a good question. So um, Glueware, Contrails, um, I just have a passing knowledge of, but I know where you're going with it. And, mm. you know, I, I would Pick have to Pick your favorite flavor. Pick your favorite yeah. vendor, you know, whatever, you know. Yeah, and you know that that brings to mind something that I read in a book. Uh, you know, I'm I'm not promoting this or getting paid to promote this. It's just a book I read. It's called The Feature X Network. Uh, Marcus Weldon wrote it back in 2015, and he said something really interesting that just kind of stuck with me about the DevOps movement. And he called it development for operations. In that vendors and service providers are gonna develop solutions to enable operations. The DevOps itself, when you're going in there and you're building all this on your own, it's a tremendous undertaking. People are definitely capable of it, but from an enterprise perspective, um, it may not be a good use of your resources, your capital and your people. So to have a uh, vendor or somebody come up with a solution like Contrails to do that for you, I mean, that could be you know a huge enabler. Um, and then you just layer SD-WAN on top of it that has the automation orchestration with it. And then all of a sudden you're moving very, very quickly um, with these complex technology stacks. Yeah. That's what I think the mistake that a lot of people are making is they start with Ansible first. And I think they would have been better off getting some sort of orchestration platform and using that so that 80% of the work was done for you. And now you're working on the 20% that's value. Yeah, yeah, it's easy to adopt though, Greg, because if because uh, mm. I look at Python and Ansible and those solutions as the bottom up automation. Oh, I'm an engineer; mm. I can download mm -hmm. this open source package or write a thing myself, and yay, I've got some sort of automation in house. Versus, I got to evaluate a platform. We got to do a POC. I've got to get budget. I've got to get managerial sign off so that we can commit to using the Glueware, the Appster, the Contrail, whatever it is. Mm. Yeah, I just feel like, and that for a lot of people is actually a killer. You get into the situation Mike was talking about with you spend so much time working in Python and Ansible and databases and instantiation and testing and validation and CICD pipelines. And there's so much going on that I feel like that they miss the fact that they would be better off not look carefully at where the wheel doesn't need to be reinvented. And that may be focusing on the security aspect and doing stuff at the edge and using a virtual network provider and programming to their APIs, or that may be um, even something simpler. Like we've seen the emergence of uh, what I call in my head, software-defined perimeter, 
That is organizations who either have a cloud infrastructure. So this is like the Z scalers and the Kato's who have some sort of cloud infrastructure. And your job is just to get the, cl- the traffic into them and then they'll take it from there. And then the edge has got nothing. It's just your job is to send it in. But there's also another version of companies which are doing a very fat edge and they're doing clients on smartphones and laptops. And they do a lot of the dynamic firewalling and a lot of the dynamic feature sets are actually being done at the edge. So um, we did some podcasts last year with a company doing this thick client and they're doing uh, content inspection, content logging, firewalling, micro-segmentation, WAN acceleration and identity management all in the client that you install at the edge of the network. So why would you do D, I, I, like in 2021, you wouldn't do DMVPN in my mind. You would you go and use somebody else's tool chain, mm-hmm. right? You, you would get a cloud managed SD-WAN network or somebody's software defined service or something and go with that. Well, it's fun, right? DMVPN's fun, Python's fun, Ansible's fun, Terraform's fun, right? Like yeah. these things, you you, you yeah. are challenged. It's like a puzzle. You do some really cool stuff. You demonstrate it to people and people are genuinely impressed. And, you know, it can be useful, right? Yeah. It can be useful. I don't want to knock the automation community at all. Um, but, you know, aside from that, it, again, just being, you know, in the commercial enterprise mindset, I'm not in the business of fun and puzzle assembly. I'm in the business of, you know, whatever widget I'm trying to put together, whatever widget I'm trying to sell, uh, whatever service I'm trying to get out the door. So, you know, from that perspective, I have to engineer towards, you know, that business outcome. And however I can do that quickly, because I have 20 other things on the backlog that are stressing me out. So I need to move from this thing to the next thing as quickly as possible. So, okay, Mike, you're raising an issue of operations here. So this is interesting because, you, you yes, as engineers, we love the nerd stuff. Yeah, Terraform and Ansible and all that. Oh, that that is fun. Hey, cool, man, look what I can do with this. And if I just spend enough time and invest in the, the template, the YAML, the whatever, then magic happens. I love it. It's so cool. And if I do that, I can more or less keep the same operational processes that I've had going. I just I can replace the CLI with something that does that same job faster. But more or less, everything's kind of the same. And you know, maybe I can roll in some of the other fancy stuff, Greg, that you were mentioning over time. And then you've inherited this this kind of monster uh, over time, and you didn't kind of see that coming. But it was cool, and your operations are kind of the same. If I go the mic direction, I go towards NFV, it feels like I'm changing things more radically. And maybe I don't have time to do that. It feels like it would be too hard of a shift to shift my operations in that direction. Am I wrong about that? Is it actually easier to go with what you're saying operationally? Well, you know, you're 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 still doing a lot of the things. Um that you do as an organization. So, you know, just kind of thinking from my perspective, uh, I've been using a lot of these platforms to do SD-WAN and uh, deliver services to our users. And what I've punted operationally was the, you know, the, the care and feeding of whatever is hosting this, right? The servers that, that are there, uh, the networking stack that's there. I'm still very much doing the networking, the SD-WAN, connecting the stuff. Like I'm doing things that are familiar and comfortable to me. They're not, you know, I need to get into the server and tweak uh, this particular setting to get DPDK to do this particular thing. Somebody else is taking care of that for me. So I don't think it really changes up your operational processes. I mean, yeah, you have to understand uh, the provider's platform to a point, you know, how you actually turned on that service, how it actually connects. But hopefully that provider is doing you a good service and that they've simplified it. They made it easy to interact with. Yeah, I always go back to underlay versus overlay. If if you automate and start thinking overlay, that's a nice abstraction layer to me, right? Mm. Because I've I've built my operations around the overlay, and then the underlay. You know, at some point, who cares anymore, right? It, it's like SD WAN. You don't you don't yeah. care what the underlying. Uh, yeah, overlay is absolutely the key. And the yeah, question yeah. now becomes: in the case of NFV, what does the overlay look like? Is it going to be? IPSEC or IPSEC-like. So we've seen a large number of SD-WAN companies come along uh, and use IPSEC or something like it. Usually they're deviating slightly to overcome the deficiencies of IPSEC, of which there are many, as <laughs> Mike would tell you about DMVPN. But there are ways to modify IPSEC and you know for SD-WAN, and that's what a lot of them have done or invented their own 
uh, protocols, or they use uh, TLS of some form. There's also the overlay network, which I think we'll eventually see a lot more of, is not one where a middle box um, creates the tunnel and the traffic gets sent into it and forwarded, such as SD-WAN does. I think increasingly what we'll see is the tunnel will start in the device at the edge. So the tunnel will be the TLS connection coming out of your smartphone or your laptop, and it will go to some centralized service for inspection, logging, and securing. And there's a transition going on where the idea that the network is separate from the device or separate from the user is something that's going to fade. And the need for NFV changes over time. And I guess this comes down to the, the question of what is a middle box? Why yep. do we want to have proxies, IDSs? Why aren't we doing the inspection at the edge? Your average uh, Apple smartphone has a better security processor than anything from a security vendor on the market today. Yeah, you know? I think at some point, you're, you're right, Greg, it, it's all going to end up as a service, right? I think networking as a service will be here and it'll just be moving packets, right? That, that's going to be the function network as a service and all these uh, intelligent things you're talking about are going to, going to migrate out toward the edge, namely the, the, the device itself. It's just at, at what point uh, does that happen? Is that a three-year time window, five-year time window, seven-year time window? And is there something that needs to be in place in the meantime to get us to that point? Namely, an NFE platform where you spin up your own VNFs and, and essentially do what you're doing now. You just do it at these distributed points. Is that a stopgap measure to get you yeah. to the end state that I think we're all, I think we all agree that's where we're going to, right? Yeah. Uh, serverless computing. We're going to bring serverless computing to the network. Network as a service, you know? There won't be a device doing these functions anymore. It'll just be some service you're spinning up. Um, yeah, when does that's, that happen? That's, that's what that's I don't TLS know. That's TLS to the TLS to the endpoint, in my yeah, opinion. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Or yep. conceptually, that's nominally how it would be over time. Yeah. Yeah. There's a part and, of this I'll, conversation, I'll, though. There's a part of this conversation that we've been talking about spinning things up, configuration, you know, instantiation of a service. We haven't talked about living with that thing day to day, and and so as we talk about maybe this eventual future where all out of the mailboxes go away, we still have this observability problem. And I'm not, I don't know that that's a showstopper or not. You still want to be able to leverage these services, but it's been a problem forever. You know, I go back to my years of operating a WAN with thousands of circuits. Okay, WAN provider, I put the packets in. They didn't come out on the other side. What happened? Yeah. Uh, we don't know. Mm -hmm. We'll figure it out. And I had no observability. <laughs> I couldn't figure out anything. Yeah. Um, beyond whatever they would tell me. Okay, we have this problem yet again, but now at multiple layers. And I, I, I feel like that's a concern that should be a, a problem for us as we consider operations. But it's not just the spinning it up, it's the now we got to live with it and how do we deal with it when it breaks because it breaks. Yeah, that is oh. the flip side of virtual instances or that ability to turn up and turn it off. It's the turning it off which is important. So even the earlier in the show I talked about Things don't actually change, but as Brad alluded to, he said sometimes uh, sometimes you just want things for a short period of time. Um, the one thing we often don't consider in the networking that we do today is how quickly can I throw it in the bin? And yeah. there's huge yeah. value in binning something and starting again or turning it off because it costs too much money. And um, so, again, it's just if I sound a bit flip-floppy, it's because I think the, the thing about NFV or overlay networking or managed service provider networking in the modern era is there's value in it, but there's mm -hmm. still value in the old ways and there's value in doing it yourself and it's going to depend. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it's, it's always depend, right? It, it, but that's the middle ground approach. I mean, you know, we talk about cloud and there's companies that are cloud first and they only want to do things in the cloud and they emerged in the cloud, but then you have companies that are more this, this hybrid cloud that, Hey, you know what? On-premises owning some of this infrastructure makes sense. Putting some mm. of it in the cloud makes sense. Using this makes sense. So really it's just about taking the best of each world and applying yeah. it to your particular use case. Uh, there are no lines in the sand on any of this, in my opinion, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. I think it, what NFE does or virtual networking, it, it allows you to do things. It brings questions onto the table we weren't even able to ask five years ago, right? You know, can I even do these things? So it's another, it's another tool in the toolbox to solve for certain use cases. 
Namely, I want to spend something up quick in Singapore because I've got a business in Singapore for three months and I need to augment what I already have over there, right? Yeah. It, mm-hmm. it, it's bringing those virtual constructs again, right, right to the network. Uh, and one thing I'll, I want to go back and clear up, clean up a little bit. When I was saying overlay versus underlay, I, I kind of use it in, in the terms of overlay being logical and underlay being physical too. So yeah. when, I was, when I was talking yeah. about automation, uh, I was, I was kind of thinking about automation at the logical level. Right. So if you have an abstraction uh, layer at the logical level and then the underlay, the physical level can be whatever. Maybe part of it is uh, an NFE infrastructure. Part of it is a physical stack you have at your on-prem. But if you put a common overlay at the logical layer to automate against, that uh, Mm -hmm. normalizes operations and normalizes what you present out to the rest of your infrastructure that you're able to instantiate, right? It, it's just a common infrastructure and abstraction layer at that point. Mike, can I ask you a weird question? I have a theory that DevOps is about adding more headcount to IT operations. <laughs> when you simplify it, DevOps is just about, it's just finding a fancy way to say you need to recruit more headcount, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the reason that you need that is when you get into these virtual overlays, into software and virtualization, you need more people because the tasks are more diverse. The technologies are expanding. The uncertainty is expanding. And more importantly, as we get into these cattle services that we are talking about, the customer has to take more and more responsibility for owning them and extracting mm-hmm. value from them, right? They're not sort of like you make a decision and then for 10 years, the, the chassis switch sits in the core of the data center and rots away until eventually it's in such a bad state that you're forced to do something about it. So you didn't need a headcount to operate it. You just needed somebody who was a firefighter in case it blew up. Whereas if you're in a virtual network, it needs constant care, constant feeding, constant monitoring, constant changes, constant reviews. Code needs to be reviewed. The service provider keeps changing the service that they're giving you. The cattle keeps changing, right? And they don't care because the fact that you expected this cattle virtual instance of a, a you know a caching proxy in the you know or a firewall they're going to upgrade it and screw over everything that you've done you're on the hook for that right is that statement mm-hmm. fair that you just need more people to operate these new infrastructures no uh, well yes and no um, i would expect my nfv provider to not do all those bad things you just said i would investigate them to the point hold them accountable make sure there's slas around that and you know, I've been operating a network like this um, in uh, how many locations in the U.S.? Four in U.S., two in Europe, and two in Asia Pack, as well as you know, distributed remote offices. And you know, the the litmus tests um, that you know I've, I've used for this is how often do I get bugged to manage this network? And I don't get bugged to manage the network, right? I've got the observability, the visibility. I can troubleshoot effectively because I can get the telemetry I need out of these devices, the analytics out of it, to quickly diagnose an issue, help um, whoever that remote user is, uh, so they can go about doing their job. But by and large, I'm left alone, which mm-hmm. I'm very grateful for, because I got a lot of other <laughs> things to work on. So, so you know, I, I think I picked the right NFV provider in, in this regard. Yeah. Um, so that's been hugely valuable to me. But, you know, if you do your homework up front, it's going to pay dividends on the back end. Um, so just be careful who you... Uh, get in bed with, so to speak. The mm-hmm. skill set is changing. We all know that and have known yeah. it for a while. Um, you know, you know, four or five years ago, when I was still working in the enterprise, we, we did our first full bore into AWS, right? And we had a lot of developer, great DevOps people, but at the time, they, they just didn't know the building blocks of networking. So I treated my job like a network business analyst, kind of like the guy on uh, Office Space, can't remember his name, that, you know, he took the requirements and gave them to somebody else. You still have to build the same building blocks, right? I, I need a load balancer here. I need, you got to do NAT here. I need a gateway here. You still need the same building blocks. So the skills are still needed. Um, mm-hmm. yep. you, you have to connect the dots for somebody. Somebody else just scripts it up for you. It, the, the CLI has changed. It's not iOS anymore, right? It, it's JSON. It's, it's a Terraform script. So if, if, So you have to think in terms of, the building blocks are still there. I just need to know how to put them together or somebody else needs to know how to put them together. They need to know how to script the building blocks mm. and stack them as I am able to articulate how it needs yeah, to be. I don't think you need to script them. I think you need to find a tool to do it for you. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, there's some sort of management platform somewhere that'll do this for you. I shouldn't have to write an Ansible script 
to instantiate a virtual network. You know, I, I just don't want to do that. That My life's too short and too miserable already. Why would I want to, <laughs> do you know what I yeah. mean? Like, yeah. that just feels, because whenever the ch- provider changes their API or whether you change providers, yeah. you have to rewrite all of that. That's just like, ah, oh, really? It's, you want to do that? That just Well, and from my standpoint as a network architect, I just want to be able to, again, get on the whiteboard and say, this is how this needs to be stitched together. Somebody else go do it. So if that's Terraform, if it's Ansible, if it's, if it's some other scripting. So back to your comment, Greg, about mm. does this take more people? I don't think it takes more people. It just takes a different skill set. I, I would also add to this, you know, the, the do-it-yourself approach um, may, may add headcount to, to a point, right? It's a stopgap. Uh, measure until, you know, you get solution maturity. If we think about um, some of the tooling and the popularity in the automation uh, realm is because it's a stopgap. It's because we have all this legacy infrastructure that's only manageable um, using SSH connections and trying to emulate behavior um, at the CLI. And mm-hmm. it's because we made these large investments, life cycle's not up, it doesn't make sense for the business to get rid of it yet. So we're going to invest in those skills, talents, and we're gonna go the, down the DevOps path to be able to get some more mileage out of what we've already invested in. But when that life cycle comes up and it's time to reevaluate, now you're gonna look for those solutions that have the built-in automation, the built-in orchestration. It's gonna be able to take mm-hmm. care of a lot of this for you. And then that staffing, that talent is going to have to shift to start managing those things. And you may need more people, you may need less people, but I mean, it's very dynamic. We always need to be evolving our skill set. We need to be ready to pivot. Um, Maybe not. See, I disagree. I think that one of the biggest mistakes that enterprise IT ever made was that, uh, that they let the vendors convince executives that if only they bought the latest and greatest, you Mm. could have less staff, right? And and then we yeah. had just massive underinvestment in headcount, and that has continued on. And DevOps, to me, is a repopulation of saying, I need five more people to do the DevOps. And the end, that's true, right? Because, well, for most organizations, I believe. And, it's critical and, evaluation, right? Like, you can't go hook, line, and sinker for whatever the vendor tells you, or at least hope your business uh, leaders, you can convince them that- Well, that's exactly why the vendors told them to get rid of the headcount so nobody would know (laughs) (laughs) when they're being suckered, right? Like the less headcount there are, the easier it is to, uh, you know, the dumber the enterprise IT staff were over time, and they dumbed them down substantially, then the easier it was to swindle them with substandard products that weren't relevant. Mm -hmm. Mike, there's there's an interesting point here that the premise of this show was you- Mike Pfeiffer, don't have time for hardware. That was an argument you made to me in, a, in an email. We were chatting about that. If you don't have time for hardware, is that does that tie into this? Do we have a staffing problem or is it just, and is that forcing you to go the NFV route or is the NFV requirement uh, also business driven just because you can bring things to market faster? Yeah, and this is just me personally, my own my own reflections here. Um, so hardware is useful; it's practical. You need it. Um, I do use it, so you know I do have some time for hardware. Um, it hasn't quite gone out the window entirely, um, but you know when I think about the hardware conversation, if I'm focused and wrapped around that, I'm not able to do a lot of other things. I'm constantly inundated with technology. I want to do this L2, L3 service chain. That's woefully complex, especially with hardware. I got spanning tree involved. I need to do this type of cabling. I need to do this type of thing. I'm focusing on some very low level details that my time can be better spent elsewhere. If there's a solution or product or a capability out there where I can say, I need um, this particular network function and I need um, this packet to traverse multiple network functions in this way, I want to just be able to click those things on to get to this the outcome that I'm looking for. And I think we're starting to see a lot of solutions. Greg started to allude to this. That could be another conversation unto itself um, where we're going to start seeing more and more of that. It's, you know, I've been in the trenches. I've been in the CLI. I've done everything you can imagine to, to networking and security and load balancing devices. And, you know, it's really fun and impressive, the things that you can accomplish. But man, I just wish I had a button to turn that thing on because I know it's that simple. Like somebody can design a button for me to turn on this particular feature and I'm done. Well, Mike Pfeiffer, Brad Gregory, you've joined us on Heavy Networking today. This has been a tremendous conversation. Let's tell the folks where they can follow each of you on the internet, starting with Mike. You've got a blog, a Twitter handle, uh, anything you'd like to share with the nice people out there. 
Yeah, the only social media account I have is LinkedIn. Um, so I can share that link with you and you can put in the show notes. Wonderful. Thank you, Mike, for joining us today. Uh, Brad Gregory, same thing. Yeah, same for me. I'm on LinkedIn. I try to use it a lot. Uh, I've got several blogs out there and try to be very active out there. So yeah, please, please hook me up. Love to talk to you about this stuff. Great. Uh, Again, thanks to both of you for showing up today. And uh, I'm Ethan Banks and uh, Greg Farrow was your other co-host for this episode of Heavy Networking. You can find this and many more of our fine, absolutely free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That is all at packetpushers.net. And we have a lot of other shows other than heavy networking. If this is the only one you're listening to, you're missing out on Network Break, IPv6 Buzz, Day 2 Cloud, Full Stack Journey, and more. That's all at packetpushers.net slash subscribe. If you'd like to chat with folks in real time, we have a Slack channel available to you, packetpushers.net slash Slack. Read the rules, sign up, and join the engineering community that is there. Again, absolutely free of charge. Just, uh, just do the thing. Do the thing. Make it happen. If you want to follow the show, we're on Twitter at Packet Pushers. We're on LinkedIn. And uh, last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.